We've been moving through the book of Exodus, and we come this morning to Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. So if you place your bulletin or your bulletin insert as a marker in Exodus chapter 23, our complementary passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. So with your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in honor of God's word, please stand. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 20, and continuing in the reading of God's word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read... We come to the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes. Behold, Lord, speak, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So a little over 25 years ago, completely different uh, 
congregation, different state, different setting, different everything. Please do not look around and wonder who this is about. But a little over 25 years ago, the church that I was serving at the time, we had a significant disagreement. I sat down with the leadership. We hashed it out. We opened up the Bible. We worked out what we all agreed was a solution. And we were all committed to that solution. Close with prayer. I got a phone call later that week and one of the church leaders had immediately walked out of that meeting and gotten on the phone with every single person in the church and told them that they needed to get rid of me. That this was not a good setting for the church. I went to the person, the leader, that did this and I said, I thought we came to agreement. I thought, I thought we had hashed this out. I thought we had all together committed to this course of action. And you can probably guess what that person said to me. The Lord led me to do this. I just didn't have a sense of peace about the decision. Now, that was kind of my first time encountering that garbage. But I wonder how many of you have encountered something along the same line. Where the Lord leads somebody to do something really sneaky. The Lord leads somebody to do something really underhanded. The Lord leads somebody to do something that I guarantee. T, his word, didn't say. (laughs) Sadly, I've encountered that a lot of times over the years. And it always strikes me as, I mean, it's sort of our Christian pietistic way of saying, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. Because, hey, when the Lord leads, who am I to step in and go, oh, no, he didn't. The leadership of the Holy Spirit, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of leading in wisdom decisions in your life. We range all the way from this purely subjective, biblically uninformed, Jimmy Cricket, Pinocchio type view of the guiding of the Holy Spirit or the leading of the Lord. The Lord led me. I mean, we can, we can be as stupid as to say the Lord led me to leave my wife and go after this other person. <laughs> no, He didn't. <laughs> but we do that on a lot of little tinier, much less quote-unquote important things. In our passage this morning, we have the first time in Scripture, the very first time that the angel of the Lord is sent to guide the people of Israel. And so, what does that look like? What is the guiding of the angel of the Lord. Who is this person? 
to very quickly set the context for us. The children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt, delivered with a mighty and outstretched hand. They've moved through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies have been crushed. They've come to Mount Sinai. And God brings them into a marriage covenant. There are seven sections to this covenant. The first is the marriage covenant itself, which we know is the Ten Commandments. The second section is the book of the covenant. And that's the portion that we've been covering from chapter 22, chapter 20 and verse 22, to chapter 23 and verse 19. This section here, chapter 23, verse 20 and following, is at the very end of this section that we call the book of the covenant. It's an application of the Ten Commandments in the daily life of the children of Israel. There are seven of these sections in all. They begin in Exodus chapter 18 and they run all the way through Numbers chapter 9. All of this portion of scripture is taking place in one spot as the children of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And now at the close of the book of the covenant, we have this promise that God gives of the angel of the Lord to guard and to guide. I want to look at this passage not necessarily as it lays before us, but as we come to the very heart of the passage and then open it up from there. At the very heart of the passage is this call, or this promise rather, this promise of radical blessing in verses 25 to 31. So if you're taking notes, our first point is radical blessing. Our second point is radical obedience. And then the third is God's angel. So the radical blessing begins in chapter, uh, in verses 25. It begins in verse 25 and it runs through verse 31. Where we read, you will not serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take your sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. So you see this, this promise of blessing. I mean, this is a... I mean, frankly, we could say this is heaven on earth, isn't it? You're not going to have any sickness... No woman will ever be barren. No woman will ever miscarry. Even the enemies that you come into, you're not even going to have to fight them. I'm going to send hornets in. And I'm going to drive the enemies out of the land. This radical blessing that is promised to the children of Israel is actually a continuation, or it's actually a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, you remember that language, I will send hornets before you, will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. Earlier, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. This goes back to the promise in Genesis chapter 15 where God 
cuts a covenant with Abraham. You remember that scene? The, the animals are laid on either side. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. The, the smoking furnace moves between the, the pieces of the animals. And we, we pick up that narrative in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So do you see how this promise in verses 20 to 33 is connected to that promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 15? So we see the connection. So pause just a second. The time between God giving that promise and now reaffirming that promise is the same length of time as between Shakespeare and today. About 500 years. If God promised something to his church in the time that Shakespeare was writing his plays, and today it still had not been fulfilled, what would you say about God's promise? You'd say it wasn't any good. You'd say he lied. You would say God hasn't delivered. One of the purposes of the Exodus is to remind you that God works on His timetable. The generations that passed between Shakespeare and us, the generations of people, the kingdoms that rose and fall, fell between 1,500 some odd, and 2022. The, the, the nations that came into existence and are no longer even in existence. Rhodesia became a nation and then became Zimbabwe. The Democratic Republic of the Congo became Zambia and then switched back again. <laughs> All of these things that God has wrought in history could have legitimately led you and me to say, he's disconnected. He's checked out. In the words of a song that at least I like, (laughs) he's up in heaven bumping his iPod. He's just checked out. But beloved... He's calling you to stay the course. He's calling you to remain faithful. When we talk about God's grand tapestry of salvation, and that's what the Exodus is. The Exodus is 
us looking at this grand picture, it really begins in Genesis. Because remember, all of this, all of this, from Genesis all the way through Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of this is being given to the children of Israel. Moses is putting all of this together and giving it to the children of Israel, saying, this is your history, this is how you are to live, this is who you are as a people, this is how you're to walk. All of this grand tapestry might feel completely removed from your life today. Bottom line, how do you connect to this great picture? I think that's part of the problem of the Christian message today. Because we certainly live in a society where it does revolve around me. It is all about me. And if I am not getting something out of this, I'm checking out. I'm going to go do something else. And this is legitimately a lot of people who could say all these promises of crushing Amorites and Hivites and Jebusites and Canaanites and Perizzites and all those heights, all of these people could say, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? I'm a slave in Egypt. I'm wandering in the wilderness. What on earth does all of God's promises have to do with me? And the answer is that you and I are threads in that grand tapestry. Now, As we see this language of purification, this language of cleansing the land, specifically in verses 29 and 30, where God says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Now remember that the Exodus is a layer. These are actual people, historic people, who historically suffered, who historically were under the lash of the Egyptians, and historically were brought out of the land. But there's also a way in which their lives are providing a picture of who God is and what God is doing in salvation. You remember where the writer of the gospel says that Jesus was called up out of Egypt so that it might be fulfilled what was said, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now when God said, out of Egypt I have called my son, That was Moses' challenge to Pharaoh. Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go because Jehovah God says Israel is my firstborn son and if you don't let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn. That was the message that Moses gave. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. And now clearly, that was a picture of Jesus Christ. Egypt is a picture of the land of sin coming out of Egypt 
And, and, you know, Paul bring that, brings that out in the passage that we read, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Passing through the Red Sea is baptism. Being led in the wilderness. Following after Jesus Christ, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so here, and so here, you'll notice that there's a progression. There's a progression of the cleansing of the land. God doesn't bring them in immediately. Bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and immediately they are at peace. He says, slowly by slowly, I will do it. I'm going to cleanse the land. You remain faithful, and I'm going to do this work for you, and I'm going to bring this tremendous blessing upon you. Do you think it was hard for them? Do you think they still had to walk by faith? Even when they came into the land, do you think maybe they still had to trust in God's promises? Because they didn't see the fulfillment of them right away. And beloved, in the same sense, God gives this for you and for me. To cause us not just to see, but to bring us to a place of trust. To bring us to a place of rest. And here's the bottom line. If your life is a train wreck, you come to Jesus. He will heal all of the mess that you've created. And that's the truth. I can promise you that. Jesus will heal the mess that you have made. The mess of your marriage, the mess of your children, the mess of your household, the mess in your own personal life. Jesus heals. And so you come. And a week from now, you go, (laughs) forget that noise. My life isn't any different. I don't see any big change. Jesus said he'd heal it. Where's the healing? I'm out of here. You think maybe there's something in this passage for you and me? (laughs) Do you think maybe there's something here about walk? in faithfulness before the Lord. And He is going to do it. He is going to bring that marriage that seems shot. He's going to bring it back. It's not easy. There's Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and all the ites. There is not an easy fix. But beloved, God will do that work. He did it for the children of Israel and He promised He would do it for them. But He promised that He would do it in fulfillment of a promise that He gave 500 years earlier. Because beloved, He is doing His work. But notice this radical blessing. Now, we're all about radical blessing, right? I want blessing. You want blessing? I want blessing. Give me the blessing. I love me some radical blessing. Do you notice how that passage is framed, though? (laughs) 
it's beautifully framed, two verses in front and two verses behind. Verse 23 and 24 in the front, verse 32 and 33 in the, in the behind. It's framed by this command to radical obedience. Verses 22, I'm sorry, verses 23 and 24. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. And then verses 32 and 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now again, I want you to engage with this text. Does that make sense to you? If God brings you into the land of promise chases the enemies out, clearly has delivered you and brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey, is the first thing you're going to do is to say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's worship other gods. Let's let's build idols. Let's make peace with all these people that God said He's going to crush and destroy. That's a great idea. Now, as a, as, a, as a spectator on this, you would go, you idiot. You, you moron. God has brought you here. He's delivered you from Pharaoh, and now you want to worship somebody else? What? <laughs> what are you thinking? Wow. starts to pierce my heart. I hope it does yours. When has God failed me? Not a single time. I've been, I've been walking with Him by, by His grace for 30 some odd years and He has never, ever failed me. Has not been easy been through some storms, been through some rocky periods, been through some trials, but He has never let me down. So I should be totally committed to Him, shouldn't I? There should be nothing in my life that I even think about in terms of being on a par with Him. And yet I don't. That's the problem of sin. That's the problem within me. That the same God who has delivered me, who has shown me the glories of His gospel, of His grace and His power, is the God that I'd like to say, I got Him, but also God. I want. It's interesting If you'll notice, in those four verses, there are three times in those four verses that idolatry is prohibited. Three times in four verses. 
Don't make idols. Crush their idols. Don't enter into covenant with them and their idols. Don't have any other gods before me. Isn't this the problem of our first parents? Isn't this that very foundational sin of saying, God said, but, but, Adam and Eve did it, the Israelites did it, you and I do it. This radical blessing that you and I can so easily sit and look from our vantage point of thousands of years later and looking at the story, this radical blessing that's framed by a radical obedience makes so much sense. And to go against it is so dumb. And yet we know they do. While they're camped at Mount Sinai, they're breaking the command not to have idols. While they're there, they're making the golden calf. What idiots. How about you and me? While we sit in the midst of God's blessings, while we sit in the midst of God's mercy and grace, we look and say, oh, I would be happy if I only. Oh, if that. Oh, if she. Oh, if he. Oh, if they. We, as Augustine says, our hearts are idle factories. And we churn them out as fast as we crush them down. That's the problem of Israel. This radical blessing is framed by a radical obedience. And that's where they blow it. Which then brings us to that angel. The angel that God promises in verses 20 through 22. I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I prepared. This angel of the Lord, this angel that God brings, is controversial. Who is this angel? And there are some markers that appear throughout Scripture. We read one of them for our assurance of pardon in in Zechariah. It was the angel of the Lord that rebuked Satan. It was the angel of the Lord that said, I have plucked this brand out of the fire. The angel of the Lord first appears in Genesis chapter 16. I love, I love that appearance. Because, beloved, the angel of the Lord, and and I hope to demonstrate very quickly and succinctly, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ prior to the incarnation. We call it a pre-incarnate theophany of Jesus Christ. It's a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the basis for that is every time the angel of the Lord appears, he receives the worship 
that is due to God alone. Other angels, when people fall down and worship them, say, hey, no, stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> the other angels, when someone falls down to worship them, goes, nope, 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 nope. Not me. In Judges, chapter 13, verses 15 through 20, the angel of the Lord receives worship. The angel of the Lord is identified very closely with God and yet is not the same as Jehovah. I mean, you can, you can just see it here in this passage. Who's the I that's speaking? Well, it's Jehovah God. Behold, I send an angel before you. But clearly this angel is not simply a messenger of God because this angel is the one who has power to forgive sin. To back up quickly to Genesis chapter 16, the reason I love, I love this angel of the Lord appearing throughout Scripture is when he appears in Genesis chapter 16, it's not to Abraham, it's not to Sarah, it's to Hagar. A fugitive slave cut off a nobody. That's the one that God chooses. That's the one that Jesus Christ chooses to appear to first in Scripture. Talk about the God of the helpless. Talk about the one who will stoop down and meet with the one who has no hope. Hagar, out there in the wilderness, her son Ishmael about to die from thirst. She says, just let me die here because I don't want to watch my son die. We are at the brink of death. Nobody is caring about us. And Jesus Christ comes and says, Hagar, lift up your eyes. I'm bringing you water. And I'm bringing you a promise. Beloved, that's beautiful. That is sweet. And that is the God that appears in Scripture. This angel appears to lead God's people. He both guards God's people in verse 22. Pay careful attention to him, obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He both guards and he guides. The same angel appears, has appeared already in the book of Exodus in chapter 14. And verse 19, this is where Israel is right there on the banks of the Red Sea and Pharaoh is rushing after them and they are, they're in a bad way. They're in bad shape. And then we pick up the narrative in 1419, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming up between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. 
Jesus Christ stood between his redeemed people and the enemy who would crush them. Do you think his arm has grown short? Do you think since that day that he's grown weaker? I agree. No. Jesus Christ protects his people. And this angel that guards and guides, the one who leads, please, to circle back around, when you get some burr in your saddle, I would say it a different way, but I'm speaking behind the pulpit, so I won't. But when you get this stupid idea in your head, that Jesus is leading you to do X, Y, Z. Beloved, this is Jesus Christ who leads and guards His people from the enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil. This is Jesus Christ who would stand between you and the one who would crush out your soul. And He calls you to follow. He calls you to this radical obedience. The fact of the matter is, you know Israel didn't do it. You know that you and I don't do it. This this call in verse 21, pay careful attention to Him and obey His voice, Do not rebel against Him, for He will not pardon your transgression. The call is not try your best. The call is be holy. Be pure. Follow Him completely. So then why can you and I stand before Him? Why could the children of Israel stand before Him? Why is there any hope? And beloved, here's the mystery, the majesty, the wonder of the gospel. This same angel who will not cut you a break. This same angel who says, you walk in every word that I say to do. Then turns to his father and says, slay me. I will take their sin. They didn't do it. Slay me. And I will rise from the grave and I will ascend to heaven and I will plead my righteousness for them. Joshua could never cleanse his garments. He had to have the old garments stripped from him and the fresh garments put on. And beloved, this isn't an excuse for you to go forth from this place and say, eh, I can do what I want. Because Jesus paid it all. I can live as I please. No, the call is to obedience. The call is to follow His Word. The call is to life everlasting. And if you have followed this angel for any length of time, you will know that following the angel means saying no 
to a lot of stuff that I want to do. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I just really would rather be doing than following in obedience to this angel. But beloved, even my imperfect obedience, the great, one of the greatest preachers of the Christian age is the preacher Chrysostom. He was known as Chrysostom the Golden-Tongued. And he gave a beautiful illustration of your obedience and of my obedience. He says, you can imagine a father has been away at sea. And he comes home. And his little boy looks up and he sees daddy coming home from his long journey. And so he scoops down and he grabs some flowers out of the garden. He wants to present daddy with a bouquet of flowers. And he comes running to daddy, eager face. But what do those flowers look like? They got mud hanging from them where he ripped them out of the ground. He, he ripped some weeds out with them too. When he ripped them, some of the stems broke. It's a bedraggled mess by the time the little boy holds up those flowers to daddy. And so the Holy Spirit comes like that little boy's mommy. And she says, hold on just a minute. And she takes that bouquet and she trims away the dirt. She pulls out the weeds. She straightens up the broken stems so that that little boy hands a perfect bouquet to daddy. Now, is it his bouquet? Absolutely. He's the one that picked it. He's the one giving it to daddy. Was it perfect without mommy's help? Mommy's intervention? No, it was a mess. And beloved, that's your obedience and mine. Your obedience truly is accepted before God. It's truly a delight for you to walk in faithfulness before God. Not because you're perfect. Not because your obedience really is that beautiful before God. The, the second you think it is, you turn into a Pharisee. That's the bizarre irony of pursuing holiness. The second you think, wow, I'm getting holy. <laughs> God goes, you hypocrite, you Pharisee. But when you bring your obedience to God, say, Lord, I offer you my heart promptly and sincerely. Lord, help me to walk in holiness before you. God truly does accept it. Beloved, this is why the table is at the center of our message. Because Israel blew it. The church blows it. You blow it. And yet you're accepted. Yet you are God's beloved. Yet you are his child. What a wondrous mystery. John Newton would call it amazing grace. And he would say, when we've been there 10,000 years, 
we're still going to be saying, this is amazing. I don't get it. I don't understand how God could love me. The reason He loves you and the reason He accepts you is because that angel of the Lord, that angel, Jesus Christ, boldly, for the joy that was set before Him, marched to the cross. And He said, Break my body so that theirs is healed. Slay me and shed my blood so that they can be made whole and pure 